The second Bible reading for tonight comes from Hosea chapter 2, verses 14 to 23. Um, You can follow along on the screen or in the Pew Bibles on page 941. Hosea chapter 2, verse 14. Therefore, I am now going to allure her. I will lead her into the desert and speak tenderly to her. There I will give her back her vineyards and will make the valley of Acre a door of hope. There she will sing as in the days of her youth, as in the day she came up out of Egypt. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master. I will remove the names of the Baals from her lips. No longer will their names be evoked. On that day, I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field and the birds of the air and all the creatures that move along the ground. Bow and sword and battle I will abolish from the land so that all may lie down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness and you will acknowledge the Lord. In that day I will respond, declares the Lord. I will respond to the skies and they will respond to the earth and the earth will respond to the grain, the new wine and oil and they will respond to Jezreel. I will plant her for myself in the land. I will show my love to the one I called not my loved one. I will say to those called not my people, you are my people and they will say you are my God. This is the word of the Lord. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us, that you show to us your heart as we read off your word and what you've done through the prophet Hosea. We pray, Lord, that we might tonight get a deep sense of your love for us, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, it's true to say that many people do not really understand Christianity as a religion. They just don't... uh, can't make any sense of what Christianity is about. And that's partly because Christianity is not so much a religion, but a relationship. I'll say that again, it's important for us to understand tonight. Christianity is not so much a religion, but a relationship. You see, in the eyes of many in this world, religion means it's to follow strict rules and regulations. It's about being close-minded Uh, narrow-minded, even bigoted. It's associated with pomp and ceremony and smoke and incense. It means forgetting to use your mind, forsaking your mind, your thought, your reason and instead going after your emotions or feelings or just blind faith. And so, in the eyes of many, religion means these things. And it's perhaps why many people have the fear of being known or called religious Now, many of you would know that during the week on a Tuesday afternoon, I teach the year ones across the road at the primary school there, SRI, which is uh, Special Religious Instruction, which means I teach them about Jesus. Um, And that's what it means. On a few occasions, speaking to the parents, I I say to some of these parents that I, I actually teach some of your children. Now, I've never yet met a parent who is against Christian education in school. But often I would hear this comment, I'm not very religious. Our family, we're just not very religious. We used to go to church, but now we're just not very religious. You see, religion is a dirty word. There's this fear of being known or called religious. 
But you see, Christianity is not so much a religion, but a relationship. It's not so much a religion, but a relationship. A relationship with God, the God of the universe, the God who made heaven and earth, the God who brought life into existence, the God who made you and me. And Christianity says, you can have such a relationship with this God of the universe. That is what Christianity is about. You, people, can have a relationship with such a God. You see, this is where, among many things, many other things, Christianity stands as unique. There, there isn't any other religions of the world where God is in fact personal. He's invested in the people. He loves the people. He is relational. You see, I mentioned this last week. In Islam, Allah is distant and transcendent and you people have no right to ever consider having a deep, meaningful, intimate relationship with Allah. That's not your place. And in many of the Eastern religions of the world, the gods there are capricious. They're out to get you. You see, the default, these gods are angry by default. They're not after a relationship with their people. And that's why the practices of many of these Eastern religions are very superstitious. Doing the right thing, placing the right thing at the right place, placing the right statues in the right place, and they do that out of fear. Otherwise, there'll be bad luck. But you see, Christianity stands starkly in contrast to those religions of the world, to every religion of the world. It's not so much a religion, but a relationship with the living God. And you see, our passage today shows us that this is the type of God God is. God who wants a deep, meaningful, intimate relationship with his people. But more than that, just as we saw in that video, a God who in fact goes out in pursuit of his wayward people. In that video clip you saw the wife who was unfaithful who left the husband to do some silly things but the husband in love pursuing her. And the only place in the world where you find such a God, such a loving God, is the Bible. But it's important for us now to also remember the type of people God is pursuing. If you remember from last week, we need to recognise not just what type of God God is but remember the type of people God was pursuing. Remember what the people were like, the people of Israel. They knew that God is God. They knew that God is the one who created all things, that God was the one who gave them life, that God was the one who delivered them out of Egypt and protected them and provided for them and sustained them. But yet these people would chase after other gods, chase after other lovers. They would turn to the idols of the land, to the Canaanite god Baal and bow down to it. And they will say to their lover, you are my lover, you this statue. You are my lover, you are the one who provides for me. You provide water and drink and wool and linen and oil. You're the God who provides for me. Now just think about that. They've rejected the God of the universe, the creator, and they've turned to created things. Now how would God feel about that? Well, we've heard last week how God felt. God is hurt by it. God is a relational God. He is hurt by it. It is God who provided for them, but they're rejecting him. But yet, what does God do in our passage today? Well, what God does is he pursues them, pursues his wayward people in love, trying to woo them back. 
He's working to thaw their cold and frozen heart, to win them back. And so have a look. We see this in verse 14. Therefore, I'm now going to allure her. I'll lead her into the desert and speak tenderly to her. You see, what's happening here at this little description is a repetition of the Exodus experience. When, when God first delivered them from Egypt and led them into the desert, God cared for them, God sustained them, provided for them, protected them. And that's what we see in the next verse, verse 15. There I will give her back her vineyards and make the valley of Achor, which means the place of trouble, a door of hope. There she will sing as in the days of her youth, as in a day she came out, out of Egypt. And so what we're meant to imagine here it is Israel, the life of Israel, spans and is stretched over several hundred years. The days of her youth was the time of the Exodus experience. There the nation was, was founded and there the nation had this simple childlike faith in God. The nation, she trusted God, wasn't yet influenced by the gods of the land, the gods of Canaan. But yet God, knowing this, knowing what they have done, God goes out in pursuit Wooing, wooing his people back to him so that he might bless them once again. Now we have to imagine how profound that is. It's profound. We're talking here the God of the universe trying to pursue people like us, people back then. This is the God of the universe who made everything. I mean, he doesn't need anyone to complete him. But everyone needs God to be complete. He's not dependent upon anyone it's not like God needs us to provide water and drink and food and clothes and shelter to him, but everyone is dependent upon God. And so in my Christianity Explored course, which we run, when that class came to realise this, that God is in fact sovereign, the creator, his creator, we're creature, when he came to realise this and the mess of humanity, they asked the question, it's a, it's a very good question, so why doesn't God just start from scratch again? Wipe us all out, destroy the earth and create a new earth and a new set of humanity? That was their question. Why not just destroy this current corrupted one? Why does he bother with us anymore and go through all the effort and trouble just to save us? I mean, it's big trouble for God to do all that. And so how do you answer that when these non-Christians ask? Excellent question. Well, God could have done that. God could have started from scratch. He doesn't need us. But God didn't. God didn't forsake his people because this is the type of God God is. He's a God who did not turn his back on his people. Though his people turned their back on him, he went out pursuing them, pursuing his wayward people in love to fetch them back. This is the type of God God is. But here you see, God not only pursues them, he renews the relationship with them. He re-establishes this covenant relationship. A covenant is an agreement between two uh, parties that did not have pre-existent relationship. God re-establishes the covenant relationship with them. They broke it off, but God now wants to restore it. And so that's what we see in the following verses. Have a look, verse 16 now. In that day, declares the Lord... You will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master. And so there's a change in the way they are to address God now. Husband, 
rather than master. God wants a deeper, closer relationship with his people. Now what's interesting here, if you notice your footnote in your NIV Bibles, the word for master is also the same word, Baal, so it's a play on word. And so God is saying here he won't, uh, they won't uh, any longer be calling on any of their idols anymore. And so verse 17, have a look at that. I will remove the names of the Baals from their lips. No longer will their names be invoked. And so God now goes on. He wants to restore the relationship and now he promises to protect them from their wild animals and to grant them safety from their enemies. And that's in verse 18. Have a look. In that day I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field and the birds of the air and the creatures that move along the ground. Bow and sword and battle I will abolish from the land so that all may lie down in safety. I mean, just imagine that. These were people who turned their backs on God. But God is chasing after them, wooing them, pursuing them and now he makes these wonderful promises to them. These are big promises that God will restore the relationship. But this time around, it will be a relationship of faithfulness. A relationship of faithfulness. So have a look, verses 19 and 20. I will betroth you to me forever. Never again this will happen. It will be forever this time. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness and you will acknowledge the Lord. You see, this time around, the covenant, the promises, the relationship will not be broken. The new covenant, unlike the old one, will never end. The promise here is that it will be forever. You see, it wasn't just Hosea who was expecting that, wow, this is what God is going to do. He's going to establish a new promise, a new covenant that will never fail. And it wasn't just Hosea. The other prophets did it as well. Jeremiah, he was looking forward to this. He said this, The time is coming, declares the Lord when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant. Though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. You see, this was the great anticipation of the Old Testament prophets. The Old Testament covenant... Uh, this, in fact, why we have two testaments of the Bible, the Old and New Testament, which means the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The Old one failed because the people failed. But now there's this anticipation, expectation, that there'll be a new one which will not fail, which will not depend on the people, but depend solely on God. And what is also promised in the new one is that the heart of the people will be changed. And so what we're seeing here is that this is the type of God God is. Though his people were wicked and evil, they turned their backs on him, he would pursue them and he would make these profound, wonderful promises to them to win them back. Now you tell me now, having heard that, where will you find a God which shows such concern for his people? Where would you go to find a God who makes such a commitment to his people? Where will you ever find a God who in fact makes a covenant with the people? You see, it's only in the Bible where you find such a God and that is the God we follow. That is the God we believe and that is what God has done here. And now finally in these final verses we see God reversing the judgment, down, reversing the judgment and blessing the undeserving. 
God is gracious towards his people. He's loving and gracious to the undeserving. And that's what grace means, isn't it? Grace means an undeserved gift. You see, grace is a Christian thing. It's a distinctly Christian thing to give freely to the undeserving. Now, grace is a wonderful concept. We need to understand that. I try to teach my kids the concept of grace. And this was my attempt the other week. Ethan is here tonight, in fact, so I shouldn't say too much. Ethan had a pretty terrible day. He was a naughty boy for a lot of the day. Got in trouble many times. Later in the day, I was busy in the kitchen making some nice cold smoothies for the family. What a father, right? (laughs) And a husband, Yvonne, got some too. And so I said to Ethan, do you think you deserve this? He said, I want it. And I said to him, no, that's not what I said. That's not what I asked. I said, do you think you deserve this? Caleb's in the background saying to him, you should say no. But Ethan, he said, I want it. Do you deserve this? I I want it. Eventually, he heard his brother and he said, no, I don't deserve it. And so then I said to him, well, if you don't deserve it, why should I give you any? He said, I want it. And I asked again, if you do not deserve this, why should I give it to you? Well, eventually he said, because you're nice. You're loving. That's what I wanted to hear, but I wasn't just milking him for it. But more than that, I wanted him to learn grace. You don't deserve anything, even a smoothie. You don't deserve it, but as your father, out of love, out of grace, he's giving it to you, out of grace. So learn grace. Hopefully he'll remember that. You see, that is what God does here on a bigger scale, a cosmic scale, Bigger blessings, greater grace. And so what happened to these people, what is promised to these people? Instead of experiencing dry, parched land where nothing is growing, where there are no crops, God will open the skies and then this chain reaction happens. The sky will talk to the land and the land will bear its fruit. Have a look, last verses, 21 to 22. In that day I will respond, declares the Lord. I will respond to the skies and they will respond to the earth and the earth will respond to the grain, the new wine and oil and they will respond to Jezreel. You see, what is happening here is the reversal of God's judgment on them. Now, do you remember the names of the three kids to Hosea and Gomer? Remember the three kids? Their names represented or symbolised judgment, the punishment of God upon his people. But all those three names now are reversed in this promise here. You see, the son Jezreel, Jezreel represented the place of bloodshed. But now that word is also used to refer now God planting or sowing or multiplying the people. It's, it, it uses the same letters. The daughter, Loru Hamar, who represented not love. Well, God says now she will be loved. And the son, Loami, who represented not my people, Well, now God says, you'll be my people again. And so our final verse, have a look, 23. I will plant her for myself in the land. I will show my love to the one I caught, not my loved one. I will say to those caught, not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. You see, what we're seeing here is the complete reversal of the judgment of God. We have to see how momentous that is in salvation history, that God would do such a thing. 
And remember, these are undeserving people. God pursues them, makes profound promises to them and promises to bless them in such a way. And so we must ask, why would God do such a thing? Why would God do such a thing? Well, that's the type of God God is. He's loving. He's gracious. The only God there is, and you won't find a God like that anywhere else, apart from he revealed in scripture. Later in Hosea, God says, For I am God and not a mere mortal. God is different to us. I am God and not a mere mortal. He pursues the way would we might not. Someone leaves me, well, forget you. God did not do that. He renews his relationship with his people. Someone breaks off the relationship, what we would do, we, we might say, well, forget that too. God renews the relationship and he, he acts in love and grace to the undeserving. Now, let's reflect a bit. We know that what happened with the history of Israel was that we actually did not see this, this wonderful renewal, these wonderful promises coming to fruition. If we consider the history of Israel, which this passage anticipates and expects, we didn't see for a long time. Remember the dates we were learning? 722, what happened then? The northern kingdom were destroyed by Assyria. This promise was nowhere to, to be seen. And then in 597 BC, the southern kingdom, they were exiled off to Babylon. The promises, nowhere to be seen. And then when they returned from exile in 538 BC, they were never the same. Never really enjoyed these wonderful blessings God spoke of here. And so, did God keep his promises? Where do we see the great pursuit of God for his people? Where do we see the wonderful promises of God to his people? Where do we see these glorious blessings of God for his people? Well, the answer, the answer is it is all in and through Jesus Christ. It is all in and through Jesus Christ. Now, that might sound like your standard Sunday school answer but it's right almost all the time. All of God's sovereign purposes, glorious plans, wonderful blessings are all found, brought about, centred on Jesus Christ. And so let's think about that. How did God pursue us? Well, you see, the hint here was that there will be a second exodus. We hear a hint of that in this passage, this description of God pursuing his people. Well, you see, when did that happen in a greater way? It happened in a far greater, far more intimate way than what Hosea could have ever imagined. It happened in the coming of Jesus Christ, in God, in his Son, becoming man, leaving his glory, leaving his home, leaving heaven, coming down in pursuit of us to seek and save the lost. I mean, Think about that. The God of the universe entered into human existence to pursue not just the nation of Israel, but all people and all out of love. You see, just in our first reading, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Now, when you, when you read the word world here, you're meant to understand an ugly, filthy, dirty world. 
but yet God loved this world, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And so how do we know that this God wants to have a relationship with us? Well, this is how. He's come in pursuit of us from heaven to earth for us. This is how God has pursued us in his son. And what is the type of relationship that God wants with us? What is the type of relationship that is renewed in Christ? Well, it is one that is as intimate as meaningful, as fulfilling, as personal as possible, far beyond what Hosea could have ever imagined. You see, the image of marriage in Hosea is developed, it is expanded and it is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. You see, with not just Israel as a nation being the wife, but with both Jews and Gentiles in the church, It is fulfilled in the relationship between Christ and the church. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 32, Paul speaks of this, what we're hearing now, as a profound mystery. This is the profound mystery that God would choose, that God would want to relate to us in such an intimate way. The mystery of the ages where Christ is the husband and the church, his people now, his wife. You see, this husband is one who laid down his life lovingly, willingly and sacrificially as the husband for the church. And we know what happened with Jesus. He went to the cross for his church. You see, this is the type of relationship, the type of intimacy, the type of love, the type of faithfulness, the type of loyalty we have in Christ. And so how do we know that God wants to have a relationship with us? Oh, this is how. This is how the profound mystery revealed in Christ, Christ the husband, the church, the wife. I mean, think about the intimacy of, of, of marriage. I mean, even on a human level, the human relationships, we all have all sorts of relationships, associates, colleagues, peers, friends, and there are better friends and best friends, and then there are boyfriends and girlfriends. And then you get married. Then you've become husband and wife. There's no relationship that is as intimate, as personal, as open as that marriage relationship. But now put this on a cosmic scale. This is the type of relationship God wants and has with his people. And finally, the promises of blessings from God. Well, they are expanded, extended beyond our imagination. When God said in Hosea, I will betroth you to me forever, God literally meant that. You see, this relationship is going to last forever. Human marriages end. It will end when one died, when both die. Human marriages end. But the marriage between Christ and the church, the joy and intimacy that is bound up with that, will extend into all eternity. See, this is the wonderful blessing we see fulfilled in Christ. The blessing is not just that we get things from God, though God in his kindness, he will sustain, provide and bless us. The blessing is not simply that we get heaven out of God, though God in his kindness grants us heaven. But the blessing, the glorious blessing, is that we get God himself. 
We get God himself. We get to enjoy the most important relationship ever in this world. In fact, we get to enjoy the most important relationship in this whole universe. We get that. A personal, intimate, close, faithful relationship that will extend into all eternity. You see, the people of Hosea's days, they could never have imagined that this was the promises fulfilled, that this is how it will extend out and be fulfilled. And so how are we meant to walk away from this passage and this message? Well, today I want to urge you in this way. I do not want all of this just to be information for our heads. But I want this to grip our hearts. I do not want this just to be information for our heads, but to really grip our hearts. I mean, just think about how profound this is, that God in his Son would move heaven and earth to pursue you. That God would even in his Son hang on the cross for you. Where do you ever find such love, such commitment, such faithfulness, but in God? You see, there is no one who will love you more deeply, more personally, more intimately, more tenderly than the God of the Bible in his son Jesus. And so you can see, if you understand that, then you will see how odious, how hideous, how wicked, how evil and how sinful it is to say to this God who has moved heaven and earth to pursue you, to say to this God, I think I'll do all right without you, God. I think my plans for life, my ambitions, they're they're okay, I don't really need you. In fact, they're better than what your plans are. In fact, you're a distraction to my plans, my ambition, my dreams. I think life is perfectly okay without you, so stay away, out of my life, God. Can you see how hideous, how odious, how wicked and sinful that is? But I hope you can also see this, how wonderful, how glorious, how mind-blowing, how earth-shattering that God, the God of the universe, will want a relationship with you and with me. This is the God of the universe we're talking about. And so together we can call out with the greatest joy, greatest delight, greatest privilege, greatest honour, the very words God allows us to call at the end of Hosea 2. You are my God. We call that out, we shout that out with joy in our hearts. You are my God. So let's pray.